Uh, it's good uh, to be with you. Uh, we finished up chapter 11 of Romans during our Good Friday service. And in that service, we talked about how uh, God was doing through the very difficult uh, reality of engrafting Gentiles into the line of his faithful covenant root and stock of Israel, that he was making something new. And that in the midst of what he was doing, it required all of the sacrifice, all of the reality, the defeat, and the battle with sin and death. And of course, we know that ultimately the creator of the universe was not threatened, that is to say, by sin or death. It wasn't a close fight. It was nonetheless a painful and costly one. And we now stand this side of it, and we are going to look this morning at what God is doing in and through this wonderful thing called the resurrection. And we're going to start by putting Isaiah 25, 6 through 9 in front of us. I will also just go ahead and, you know, sometimes we say, get out your Bibles and open them up and certainly open it up to Isaiah and go ahead and put your fingers in Isaiah Jeremiah, Genesis, Romans, and probably a few of the Gospels. So just sort of keep your fingers, and then we'll just try to tie all of this together. Hear now God's word. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Thank you again for your faithfulness. Lord, your words are timeless. They are eternal. You build on them. You enrich them. They are alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. We ask this morning that your word again would fill us with its life, its beauty, its joy, its clarity. And Lord, that we might see you more clearly. May your word be spoken in truth. And whatever is not true or useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. And so as we reflect on resurrection, we reflect on the power that it has to really and truly transform the entire created universe. Not only the created universe, the physical material one, but the one that is the place that God dwells, heaven. Uh, 
a restoration of those things which have divided heaven and earth, and a renewal of earth itself, and the launching of eternity free from death and sin. And so for us, Easter is not just simply an event that happened two thousand years ago, it is literally the fulcrum of all history. Since time began, resurrection was the point at which the power of sin and death, which throughout the entire Old Testament seems unstoppable. Most of what we read, and I've said this before in the Old Testament, particularly in the ceremonial laws, are supposed to teach you that death and sin are everywhere that you literally can't walk down the street without somehow becoming defiled by something that seems rather common in creation. The point of those things was not that you would ever wash yourself enough to actually become holy enough to walk into the presence of God. That was not going to happen since there was a massive curtain between the place where God's throne That is, the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant, which was designed as a throne, actually sat. Only one person got in there once a year. We couldn't get to God. We had no access. What we did have was one tragic story after another of God's people being presented with the glory of their God and tragically being unable to hold the vision of God long enough for even a generation to pass without some great calamity, without some great turning back to the pragmatism of the sinful and broken and fallen world. And it's pretty depressing And whether one believes in a rather young earth or an older earth where God has taken his time, those things aside, we know that human beings have existed for a long time and that human history before the resurrection is a lot longer than what we've experienced on the other side of the resurrection. And you've heard me say this before, but the difference between what happened in the 8, 10, 20, 40,000 years of recorded human history prior to the resurrection is not terribly encouraging. There's not a whole lot of progress, quite frankly. There's some. There's common grace. But to imagine that that much history happened prior to the resurrection and then to see what God has done in the 2,000 years since, not in a linear line, not in a utopian way, but nonetheless, God has done amazing things in a relatively short period of time given the scope of human history. The fact that you and I live in a world in which rights, human decency, the value of the individual, are promoted is earth-shattering. Those values come from being created in the image of God. And whether or not we've always done a good job, and we clearly haven't, no one ever does, 
Nonetheless, God has still, through His church, enforced those and reinforced those ideas. And again, the world can claim that it came upon the dignity of human beings despite the church, but the reality is they didn't. The enlightenment isn't all that enlightened without the gospel. The fact that places like India and China are now struggling with how to respect the rights of women and to dismantle cultures that have not been safe places for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien at the gate is the result of generations of missionaries, generations of flawed human beings still trying to live out the gospel in new places around the world and bringing salt and light into cultures that have some aspects of the truth and yet nonetheless needed the revelation of the full truth of God to begin to battle against those things that rob human beings of their dignity as those created in the image of God. And so resurrection is not merely the promise that someday I'm going to go to heaven or that I'm going to get a shiny body. It is about recreation in the dirtiest, muckiest, practical ways so that the glory of God can be shown in the same way that it was shown in the ministry of Jesus in some of the less pretty places in Jerusalem or in Samaria or in disciples who left him in his moment of need and would struggle their entire lives to figure out whether or not they should be circumcised Jewish people and how the Gentiles fit in, and which is all Paul is writing about. How do we create a new community of faith grafted on one covenant, the same covenant, the same promises, which is why we're in Isaiah. So let's walk through this text together here briefly. What is God doing in the promises in Isaiah 25 and what we see fleshed out in the narrative in John that we read this morning? On this mountain, the Lord of hosts, God is making a new temple. We know all of the stories about Jesus, and if you don't, I look forward to sharing them with you at some point, but Jesus talks about himself being a new temple. If you tear down this temple, in three days I will build it back up. We've just read those powerful narratives on Friday night. Jesus becomes the temple. What's the temple? The temple is not a place where you kill things and offer it up to God. The temple is a place where God meets with his people, where heaven and earth, those things that have become separate, are once again joined in a location. It becomes the places where God's dwelling and human dwelling overlap. And Jesus is becoming that temple. And so what Isaiah is foreseeing is a day in which the temple of the Lord, the temple mount, will begin to spread and cover the whole earth. Because it is now in Jesus. It is no longer limited by geography, but is transformed by the living presence of Christ through his people by the Holy Spirit. You are now a temple. We know that language. You and I are a temple. We are a temple where God dwells. What does that mean? It means it's a place where heaven and earth meet. 
where the material and the physical are once again reunited in the way that they were always supposed to be. What God is doing in the resurrection is solidifying, and this is why the presence of the Holy Spirit post-resurrection through Pentecost is different than what happened before the resurrection. The Holy Spirit didn't dwell in the same way. There was still a problem that hadn't been solved. And so it wasn't that God couldn't interact with humanity. It wasn't that there was no interaction. It is the ease of reality of heaven and earth once again increasingly overlapping so that we consciously know we live in the presence of God in a way that the Old Testament saints could only prayerfully imagine and look forward to. He will swallow up on this mountain. What? Death itself. This new temple, this place where heaven and earth meet, has to address the fundamental problem that is covering all of the nations of the world. Death itself. And death here means all of sin and death combined. It is all of the implications of Adam and Eve's rebellion where they decided to be independent beings. The resurrection is a reminder that we are not independent beings. That the illusion and the lie that we could be like God, that is to say independent of God, brought only sin and death. Which is why Paul so often affirms the fact that it's only by faith that you are saved. Faith in what? Faith that God did something, not faith in me, not faith in my righteousness, not faith in my ability to keep the law or wash my hands enough or be circumcised or 15 other things. No, faith in God. Abraham was justified by his faith. What? That God would do something. Not that I would be made capable of doing something. Not that if I got a little extra Holy Spirit, I could save myself. Not that I was being empowered to be an individual free from sin independent of God now because I'm perfect. The whole miracle of the resurrection is I need a new body. Someone's going to have to make it for me. Someone's going to have to animate it, and someone's going to have to make it a living being. Where are we now? Genesis 2. Adam didn't will himself to be existed. He certainly didn't will God to blow nephesh into him the spirit that he might be a living being. What is God doing? He's building new temples. These are temples that not, do not build themselves. And that's the glory of it, to be wonderfully and gloriously made. To have our faith be not in our own ability, but resting in the one who defeated sin and death and became for us a place where heaven and earth meet again. What else is God doing in this passage? Well, again, what Paul's been talking about through all Romans all nations, all peoples. So we have in Romans the complication of having Jewish folks added back to the Roman church because they'd been kicked out. And let's be clear, probably not all of the Romans were terribly excited about the Jews coming back to Jerusalem, right? Ethnic bias is not something that was created when we invented you know, chattel slavery. 
We are not the first human beings. We're always very clear. Human beings have always been racist one way or another, whether we use that language of tribalism or 15 other things. So Paul realizes that he may have Jewish folks walking in saying, aha, we think we're better because we're God's people and you all need to act like we did historically. And Paul's saying, oh, be careful. Remember how often you've been saved by grace and it was by God's mercy that you are his covenant people, not by the fact that you're better off genetically or religiously. At the same time, Paul is also guarding against the Gentiles beginning to think, well, those Jewish folks are awful backwards with all of their washing and their other. We're enlightened. We now know that we just need faith and we don't need any of your rules or your uh, traditions. We are the new sprout. You are the old dead tree, which again is powerfully unpacked and undone by Paul in Romans 11, where he says, look, first of all, let's be clear. You're being grafted into a very old tree which is counterintuitive. I didn't know this until I studied the passage, but usually what folks would do is they'd find a tree that had produced good fruit, but the roots were beginning to rot, and you'd take good branches from that olive tree and put it onto wild stock, put it onto a new root system. And so what Paul's talking about is actually counterintuitive to what folks knew in agriculture at the time. You don't stick new branches onto an old stock. You take the good, best branches of good fruit and put them onto new stock, new roots. The counterintuitive, wonderful gospel again is this. The roots weren't the problem. The covenant was always true. And God was going to be faithful to making sure that even if that tree needed to be cut back, that it would always be renewed and restored, that there would be new shoots. And the Gentiles needed to understand the humility that it wasn't that God was done with the Jews and started with the Gentiles or that he'd always just loved the Jews and never really loved the Gentiles until after the resurrection. None of that was ever true. What was always true is that God used a people to be a blessing to all the nations. And Jesus was the means by which all of the nations would be blessed. And Isaiah speaks to it, sings of it here in this passage. All peoples will be gathered together. And so when sin and death are undone, those things that usually cause us to not like one another, to have to protect ourselves, to keep what's mine so that you don't take it and I have mine, are all undone. We don't fear death anymore. The Christian ethos is to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. That unites people. It can't help but unite people. It brings them together. And of course, in these days, like in so many other days of the church, when we find ourselves more divided, the world questioning even our own words of mercy and justice, we're reminded by the power of God's resurrection that the things that normally cause people to fear one another are undone in order that we can serve one another in a world like God does so that all the nations will feel the spreading of God's light as we drive back the darkness. 
which then moves us to the last point. There is blessing, massive blessing. So God creates a place through the resurrection where heaven and earth can meet again, a temple, a temple of people by the Holy Spirit that spreads throughout the world and it spreads to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, bringing people in in an equality because the only thing that makes us enter into the Holy of Holies, become a temple, is faith in God. And so the resurrection then allows us to enjoy the blessings of God. I don't understand what this means as far as uh, you know, those who argue that we'll all have to be vegetarians on the other side of glory. I'm hoping that this passage in Isaiah really reinforces the idea that well-marbled well meat is not necessarily an indication of death in the way that it's being talked about here. It's an interesting theological question, all jokes aside. What we do know is that Isaiah, trying to describe what is the most amazing feast one could have, is he's describing the richest, most lavish foods possible. The wine has been allowed to sit and age in the bottle so that the sediment has settled out, and you can pour a very clear and clean wine without little bits of grape and yeast in it. The food itself is not just lean and stringy, but it is rich and tender and flavorful. The fruits, the vegetables, the wine, the food. But notice, no one brings these things to the temple. No one brings anything to God in Isaiah 25. Did you notice that? It's God who is doing all of this. And that includes the blessings. And the blessings of a meal that He sets out for us is a promise that in the end again, it is His prodigal nature, lavish, lavish love that sets for us a meal we can scarcely imagine and there's enough for everyone. And they break bread in peace because death and fear and sin have been removed. Everything that makes it hard for me to sit down with another person without one hand either heading towards the door or on some defensive weapon. All gone. All at peace. There is the blessing also not just of the feast, but the wiping away of the tears. And we see that even in Jesus' ministry right after he's resurrected to Mary Magdalene. She's weeping. What is the first thing that he's able to do is to dry her tears so that any tears she has after that are tears of joy that her Savior is risen. No longer tears of grief. No reason to cry for a Lord who's been killed and a vision destroyed. Instead, the empty tomb now symbolizing the end of reasons to weep because of grief and pain and sorrow. Mary Magdalene is the first one to have her tears wiped away by the good news that he has risen and that he has risen indeed. 
This is what God is doing in the resurrection. It is no small thing. It's just not an event where death got defeated and Jesus then you know, went up and sat next to the Father and pleads on our behalf, which is all wonderful, and I'm not minimizing it. I'm trying to say that resurrection is far more than you and I fully understand. We don't meditate perhaps enough. I don't meditate enough on how much things have changed because I see death, even in its defeat, still scoring little victories in my life. And I keep thinking that I live pre-resurrection. There's certain ways in which I think sin and death are still stronger than they really are. We should respect our enemy in the sense of don't be cavalier. But gosh, don't give them too much credit. Sin and death have been defeated. Do I live in light of that reality of resurrection? Do I live in the light that all nations and people are now my brothers and sisters in Christ and I don't call them them? There is no them. There is all nations gathered together. And do I see my life as fully blessed? Blessed because my tears are increasingly wiped away or even in my weeping, I have those who weep with me who are willing to wipe away my tears as a foreshadowing and a forepromise of what Christ is doing for me, to be with me in my aloneness or my brokenness or my fear. I'm not left alone anymore. Not only do I have the Spirit, I have you and the Spirit connecting to me. And I have more than enough to throw the most lavish prodigal feasts for younger brothers who come home, for older brothers who should be walking in the door, for strangers off the street to come in and enjoy the wedding feast of the Lamb. This table we're about to come to is about as lavish as it can possibly get. Do we see it through the eyes of sin and death where it's just a piece of bread and a small amount of wine? Or do we see it through the lens of the resurrection that says, actually what this is, is the body and blood of Christ. It's full intimacy. It's all of my inheritance. It's all of the promises wrapped up together. I am in Christ and He is in me. Therefore, everything is before me. I have no want or need. Do we see it through the lens, through the eyes of resurrection? This is a feast. And it's a foretaste of even greater things to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be merciful to the preaching of your word. Thank you that you are gracious. Thank you that you are patient. Thank you that you are changing your creation into what it was always meant to be. Thank you that you are changing each one here in ever greater degrees into who we were always created to be in you unique and yet wonderfully bound together by a common father, a common brother, and a common spirit. May that be what we are all known for, that the power of the resurrection might bring in our hearts, in our church, in our community, and in this world, justice, mercy, and a deep abiding humility. In Christ's name, amen.